Hello, heroes, and welcome to another informative episode of Critical Success. I'm James D'Amato, your Game Master. This week, I'll be talking to Avanel Wing of Double Exposure. We sit down to discuss some of the awesome gaming-related work that she's doing as part of Double Exposure, and, of course, games in general. I hope you enjoy. All right, heroes, uh, let's meet our guest for this week. People might know her as uh, one of the leads on Double Exposure. You've probably encountered her outside of the Double Exposure Hall at Gen Con or at one of many other conventions. This is Avanel Wing, known to many people who are in game design and like what these people do as Avi. Avi, thank you for joining us on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So first off, just so everybody gets to know you a little bit, Avi, how long have you been gaming? Honestly, for as long as I can remember, I was a proto-LARPer. LARP is kind of my my preferred art form and design form. And for as long as I can remember, my sisters and I were designing little mini LARPs and playing them out in the living room. That's that's so cool. Okay, so for somebody who... LARP is one of the blind spots that I have in the you know, general hobby. So what is a proto-LARPer? When I'm talking to potential LARPers or people who think of themselves as non-LARPers, I usually start the conversation with, did you play House or Cops and Robbers as Uh kids? And everybody goes, yeah, yeah, I did. And so I'm of the opinion that culturally, most American kids have at least some experience with LARPing. It's just something that my sisters and I did a lot. The best Christmas presents that we ever got were um, those little grocery store kits where you end up with the, you know, the plastic milk and the cheese and the apples. And we built these elaborate scenarios where we would play through them and then we'd be like, okay, let's play that again. But now this is your restriction. Oh, cool. So you actually made up rules too. Yeah, we did. We did. And we had one that we played for a really long time with quilts where we'd each gotten quilts for Christmas. And so we set them up as though they were um, kingdoms that existed side by side. And each quilt and each block on the quilt represented a different type of output for the kingdom. And so you had to barter negotiations with people and you had to explain what each resource was and why it was valuable to the other kingdoms. (laughs) And so we had some really elaborate sort of contract negotiation and resource management LARPs as like 10, 6, and 4, I think, were our ages around that time. Wow. Wow. That's quite a history. And like, actually, I will say that in improv, we consider kids to be the best improvisers because they know all the stuff that we have to train to do over a course of years just instinctually. So yeah, I, I definitely agree. Probably everybody, uh, no matter how what, what they think of LARP, they have probably LARPed in their life. Yeah. I'm always surprised when someone's like, no, I never did that. I'm like, huh. I can't imagine not having done that. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's that's wow. Uh, I would be impressed if I met a person who like had actually never played pretend as a kid, right? Um, but when did you uh, make the transition from uh, you know just playing as a kid into uh, you know something that you would read from a book? The what we consider is the more structured vision of gaming. What was your first game and entry point into that? I grew up on and around military bases, and so structured gaming, board gaming, role-playing was always around me. It was just sort of a natural part of the culture and the community. 
But much like any kid who's like, yeah, that's stuff my parents do, I didn't really think of myself as a gamer, and I didn't actually pick up game books, I guess, until high school. You know, we were always welcome to get involved, but I was usually under somebody's chair at the table coloring rather than playing. Mm -hmm. Right. So my first introduction where I remember actively being engaged instead of just being a bystander and sort of an, uh, an ancillary participant was just after high school, believe it or not, a friend invited me to a Vampire the Masquerade tabletop game. Aha! And I know that I had gaming experience before that, but that is the first one where I kind of took ownership of the experience and remember it distinctly. And not very long after that, that would have been July or so, and by the next February, I was attending conventions, and by a year later, I was helping run conventions. Wow. Very short trajectory. That's a fast track. It took me years to think, like, even a little bit about entering the industry. So I I like that uh, gaming has somebody who's so determined and business-minded to the point where you were negotiating contracts uh, as a (laughs) preteen. I don't know that I understood at the time what practice it was and that I was preparing for this path. But yeah, I definitely sort of ended up with my feet on the path and strode forth boldly. (laughs) Well, with that, let's talk a little bit more about your work in gaming. Uh, You are one of the heads of Double Exposure. Uh, Let's talk about Double Exposure and just introduce our audience to what it is. Okay. Uh, Double Exposure is kind of a multi-headed hydra style creature where we do a bunch of things and pursue a bunch of different ends simultaneously. Um, The ones that sort of matter in this conversation are that we run uh, Dreamation and Dexcon, which are two consumer-facing gaming conventions, sort of what people think of as gaming conventions, but they're built on a sci-fi convention model. Um, Mm -hmm. And we've been running those for about 25 years. They predate me. Both, Both of those predate my involvement with the, with the company. Um, and it was actually a dreamation in 1997 that got me, quote, into the industry and is where I met Vinny, my business partner and husband. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Man, um, I love it when gaming brings people together. <laughs> they run in February and in July. And dreamation has a big focus on indie RPGs and is the home of Indie Game Explosion and is sort of our laid-back, casual, everybody-comes-and-plays-and-has-a-great-time con. DexCon is our national convention where we do bigger, splashier things, things that involve a little bit more prep and concentration. Our signature events are a big deal where we do giant LARPs with huge amounts of production value. And then out of that community, because we've been doing this for a long time in the same area and we've developed deep roots to our community, Five years ago, we launched a project called Metatopia. And when Vinny came home and said, we're going to do a playtesting convention. And what we're going to do is we're going to charge designers and they're going to pay for the convention. And the playtesters are going to pay a nominal tiny fee to come in and participate in making these games better. We all looked at him and said, you're out of your mind. (laughs) Oh, my God, that sounds like so much work. And he's like, no, 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 it'll be fine. Trust me. And we all, you know, sort of followed along because when he comes home with audacious ideas, we go, okay, let's see where this goes. So we did. And it was such a satisfying experience. The community came together. It really started out with this concept that game designers and game designers with giant portfolios are people. 
and are people who game and are people who love gaming. And so this concept of a gaming ivory tower where those people are unapproachable and separate from new designers or players is so different from my experience in the industry, Vinny's experience with the industry, that part of the Metatopia model was getting those people involved in sharing the information that they have, sharing the knowledge and experience they have, and making it accessible so that people aren't constantly reinventing the wheel. Uh, it's, I make it no secret that Metatopia is my favorite convention, period. Uh, and it's for that reason, uh, one of the big mission statements over here at OneShot is to spread gaming and grow the hobby. And one of the best ways to do that is to get new people involved. And that's not just involved on the playing side, but involved on the design side. And what Metatopia does by allowing people to bring new ideas uh, and put them in front of people who have had a lot of experience, it builds those projects into something that is more attainable, more realistic, and functions better. At the same time, it's like uh, officially welcoming people into this little industry that we have going. Uh, Metatopia is so beautiful because it puts everybody on the same playing field. All you need to do to be a creator is bring an idea. You, you don't even need to play the create, you know, pay for the creator badge so much as you need to show up with an idea so that next year you pay for your creator badge and then come in to refine that idea. Absolutely. Uh, we deal with a fair number of people who are afraid to own the concept of being a creator. And so they show up to brainstorm and spitball something that is still a teeny tiny idea. And it's really fascinating to watch people make that shift from, oh, no, I'm not a game designer to, well, maybe, maybe someday. <laughs> Right, right. And uh, you, one of the things I love about you personally is that you are always pushing the idea that, well, as soon as you have thought of anything, you are a game designer. The, the separation between game designer and not a game designer is very small and people need to stop creating that separation because that's what drives people away from actually pursuing some of these projects, which are great. Absolutely. I, I can't stand the, well, how did you publish? Cred check. Uh, some of the best things I've ever played are still in the process of being developed or may never even be published. And it really, it makes me sad to imagine that those designers and those developers would think of themselves as not enough. Yeah, I mean, if I think of some of the uh, most recognizable and uh, best loved games on the internet, you know, I think of something silly and small like Everyone is John or Lasers and Feelings. The these are games that anybody could have made because it's essentially just a block of text thrown up on the internet that anybody can freely consume whether or not they're paying for it doesn't matter because you don't need a physical book and you don't need to put yourself through a system of established publishers all you need is an idea and the willingness to communicate that idea to other people and you're a game designer yeah, so Metatopia really does sort of create that space where we're talking about ideas and we're talking about concepts and we're talking about processes and making those accessible. And we branched off from Metatopia and uh, now run the first exposure playtest hall at Gen Con, which is sort of the proving ground where we encourage people to really run a ton of playtesting and to test their cultural assumptions and to make sure that their concept works well on a national level, mm -hmm. that it's not just in their home community, it's not just with players who know them, it's not just where it's safe, 
but that the, that the concepts play out. And so if somebody decides that they want to make that transition from having a cool concept to maybe seeing if it's commercially viable and can they publish it and will it be well received, uh, the first exposure hall is kind of that next step. Metatopia is the very intimate, very safe area where you can come and be like, hey, Abby, I'm terrified by this playtest. Can you talk me through like getting my nerve up to go into this room? And then first exposure is really like I've done this. I've shaken out the wiggles. I've got this under control. I'm ready to prove this and improve it with input from people all over the country. Last year at Gen Con, we sort of organically came up with this idea that game designers and publishers who have made that trend, that that move and are looking at the national scale and are ready to engage in selling their product at game stores and at conventions and to people on the internet really need more support than they had access to. Mm-hmm. Um, because often a design house is one to five people doing this part-time in their off hours and therefore maintaining uh, presentation teams or demo teams and getting things out to conventions that are outside of your immediate geographical area gets very tricky and very expensive. And so on September 1st last year, we announced, and on January 1st, we launched the Envoy program, which is designed to help small to mid-sized uh, gaming companies really develop their marketing plans and to get their product out there in front of audiences that wouldn't have heard of them ordinarily and get things being played at conventions where the designer has no capacity to get to. If you're on the East Coast, uh, running something at a convention in Hawaii or California might be completely <laughs> outside of your, your capacity. Right, right. Uh, this is another uh, great value that Double Exposure provides uh, that I really like. I'm somebody who craves structure in my life. Uh, I've got attention deficit disorder. I have dyslexia. I'm just a very disorganized person. So I depend and thrive on structure to, you know, help me succeed in different scenarios. And one of the things I found about the adult world is people haven't really put much thought into how to structure that. Nobody is here to tell you what to do. A lot of people, you know, come into comedy through improv because even though there's not a huge structure, there's a small bit of structure. You go through classes and then you get on stages and then hopefully from there uh, somebody sees you and you get representation. With game design, for the longest time, there has been nobody who could tell you how to do it. Uh, I think one of the questions that game designers get asked most frequently is, how do I get into game design? And, you know, even venerable designers like your Ken Heights and your Robin Laws can just tell you, well, game design is tricky and everybody sort of gets into it by breaking the mold each time. So even if I told you how I did it, I wouldn't be able to tell you a process that you could then recreate for yourself. Uh, and that, that sucks. That sucks. <laughs> and it makes it really hard to get involved in the industry. But here we have somebody actually setting up a program that people can get involved in that provides that structure that goes, here's what you do on the playtesting stage and the design stage. Uh, here are a bunch of people that you need to know to become more ingrained in the industry. And now you have the Envoy program, which actually guides people who might not have the best business sense, a really uh, great marketing ability to build something that's commercially viable, which is really great. Let's pretend I'm a designer listening to the OneShot uh, podcast network right now, and I want to get involved in the Envoy program. Uh, exactly what do you guys provide? 
so that question, is, we're going to talk RPG designers first. Uh, yeah, let's. we are a mostly RPG audience, but I'm sure we have a lot of enthusiastic designers everywhere. But yeah, let's start with RPGs. Okay, so the exactly what we offer is actually very much like many of Double Exposure's other products are pick and choose. We don't, uh, we are not changing ecosystems, we are enhancing them. And so, um, sort of the first conversation we would have would be to talk about what the designer's future plans are. What is, what's your product? What do you want to accomplish with it? Um, do you want to be engaged on a commercial level, first of all? Because mm-hmm. not every designer is interested in, uh, you know, getting into IPR and selling their games in physical form. Um, so there's sort of an, a conversation about what are you trying to accomplish? What do you want out of this? Um, and there are some reality checks that come along with it. Because if their response is, I want to be the next Pathfinder, um, we might very well rein them in a little bit and be like, okay, let's, let's break this down into some smaller intermediate goals before we get there. Right, right. Because um, it's not, it's not crazy to want to be the next Pathfinder, but it is crazy to assume that you will go there on your first step. Uh, and easing into it with attainable goals is a smart idea. And it, it prevents the, the sense of defeat. It creates intermediate levels of success where you can be like, hey, I did this thing. Um, we recruit game masters. Um, once, once a company does join Envoy, uh, we recruit game masters and our RPG game masters get PDFs of game systems. One of the benefits that Envoy offers versus just sort of freestyling it is that we certify each game master. So they get a system. They learn the system. Maybe they run it a couple of times at home, or maybe they're one of those magical creatures who can read a rule book and grok a system without running it. <laughs> I'm deeply envious of those persons. And then we do either a video conference or a phone call where they demonstrate to us that they understand the core concepts of the system. And sometimes that involves us having had con- conversations with the developing development team or the designer. Sometimes that sometimes there's systems that we just understand because we've watched them develop or because we've worked with them before. Um, so that means that you've got an increased chance of the players who are exposed to this game at conventions or meetups having a satisfying first experience with your game. I think we've all had that experience where the GM gets to the table and has only kind of half read the game and sort of understands it. But then there's a procedural question that takes 10 minutes to resolve because they just don't know. And so that is actually one of the main things that we offer to designers who are up and coming is that we make sure that the game masters understand the vision or at least how to execute the game to eliminate that bumpy first experience that can put an audience off of a game. Uh, We just announced that we're going to be launching an online gateway for role-playing and story games that is going to be almost like the concept from uh, MMOs where you throw up a looking for group sign and people can say, hey, I'm online and I'm willing to GM these three games. Or you can be a GM and be like, hey, I'm looking for players to round out whatever. And I think this is going to be an excellent way for people to experience new game systems without committing to a long campaign or feeling like they need to conquer the learning curve of the material on their own. 
so that's sort of where we are right now with for RPG designers. Uh, Envoy is sort of the once you've gone through the the heartbreak of your first terrible playtest where nobody understands what you're trying for at Metatopia, and you've worked out the bugs and it is a finished product. Then Envoy picks up for designers. Aha. Uh-huh, okay. So- <laughs> care experience beforehand of getting you to the point that you're published uh, all the way through Metatopia and First Exposure. And then Envoy is for published designers that are ready to take that next step. Aha. Uh-huh. So it's a very much like if you if you heard one of the games that we featured on the One Shot podcast uh, and you wanted to go out and support that game, one way you could do it, you could hook up with the Envoy program as a herald and show that game off in an official capacity. And I know so many of my listeners are enthusiastic about showing people new games. So if I wanted to get involved as a herald, uh, what would I do and what would my responsibilities be? Uh, you would go to dexposure.com slash envoy and you would fill out one of the forms on the Herald page, letting us know that you're interested, mentioning where you heard about us from, just so that I can channel it back to this podcast and say, hey, people are excited because of you. <laughs> uh, it's nice to give that back to the podcasts. And then there's a video conference where we just we, we send you the Herald Guide, which outlines the program and basically says, hey, this is about sharing games with people that are excited about games and um, and building a community of people that are sharing games together. And then there's a video conference where we answer any outstanding questions. And, you know, if somebody is, has a million questions, we take as long as it takes to sort of resolve those and make sure that someone knows what they're getting into. Um, being a herald, the minimum requirement is three appearances over the course of a year, which most people find completely manageable. Uh, and that gives you access to the entire community. That gives you access to all the support, all the news about what's going on. Um, we send out announcements about local conventions all the time saying, hey, this convention is offering GM badges. Hey, we've got this promotion happening on this date. Do you want to be involved? Um, and so we do a lot to connect players with retailers and conventions and meetup groups or game masters with these resources. Um, and basically the, the major requirement for being a herald is being willing to do the record keeping for us so that we can keep track of what's happening where, because one of the failings of how the industry is set up currently, quote the industry, <laughs> um, is that it's really hard unless you're super jacked in and have all the energy in the world to go chasing this details to find out where your game is being played and how it's being received. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. And so game companies don't have access to that information unless they're out there searching convention websites and keeping an eye on it. And it, it takes a ton of overhead to maintain that information that small game companies just don't have the access to. And so part of what we're doing is giving them that information on what's being played, played when and where. That's really great. And actually, one of the side benefits that I'm hearing from this, uh, at least from the Herald end of things, is not only are you able to go out and support games that you love and creators that you love, but also you have a bunch of people who are helping you find opportunities to run these games. I cannot tell you how many people in our forums and on Twitter say, I loved this episode uh, where you guys did Inspectors. I bought it and it's been sitting on my shelf. Uh, I just wish I had a group to play it with. 
the Herald program identifies opportunities for you to go out and enthusiastically play those games and have those experiences that you've heard on our show. And interestingly enough, we are super agnostic about people representing or running games that aren't part of the program. So if I send out an email saying that such and such convention wants heralds, and you say, you know what, I will go and I will run a couple of sessions of Fortune School or Troll Babe or one of our other, uh, something from Green Ronin or Champions even. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you then also are talking to the convention and they're like, you know what, we could also use inspectors or we could use um, something that isn't part of the program. that's fine with us. We are interested in promoting and advocating for gaming across the board. And so those connections aren't, while it is lovely that we are leveraging for our member companies, if someone's like, oh, I'm also going to go run this other thing, more power to you. We're super excited that you're running things and that you're connecting deeply with the convention community. Awesome. Uh, That's a great benefit. So if you were somebody right now who is itching to play a game or itching to play generally and you want to do some good at the same time that you're doing it, signing up to be a Herald is not a bad idea. Um, I know uh, Kat Cool uh, from our show recently signed up to be a Herald on the board gaming side. And she also talked about some other benefits uh, that maybe weren't... uh, weren't super beneficial to her who writes off taxes every time she buys a board game, uh, but might be beneficial to some other people who are looking to get involved. And that is earning games. So let's talk about that for a second. Absolutely. So on the RPG side, the PDFs of core game systems are free. You just have to go through the certification process. So we send you a system, you learn it, you certify on it. Uh, Then you can request your next system. So if you are somebody that likes to dabble in a bunch of different systems and uh, believe firmly, as I do, in legitimately obtaining copies of games, that's an awesome way to do it. On the board gaming side of things, we do what's called appearance points, and you get a certain number of appearance credits to quote-unquote spend on requesting free copies of games from the companies, and then you uh, fulfill appearances in order to work that off, as it were. And so that's how we make sure that people don't overcommit themselves. It's how we make sure that the game companies are um, getting the communication that they need. But the interesting thing about the program is, again, because we're not trying to dictate how people engage with the program on that level, people can also use copies of their own games to rack up appearance points. And once you've accrued or banked a certain number of, number of appearance points, you log into a, the website. Uh, it's a back-end private Herald form that's proprietary software that we had designed for us. And you can spend those appearance points to request games without having committed anything to anybody. Mm. And so it's tools at the beginning. And then you can use your points and your basically those points are a demonstration of your commitment and your involvement in the program that you can turn around and use to request additional games. And so there are a lot of ways for people to get involved, and it's tailored to accommodate a tremendous range of capacity to commit. So it's designed so that if somebody is working full-time and has kids, they don't have to feel like they can't engage because they're too busy. But if they have all the time in the world and they're off during the summer and they're traveling and they've got a bag of games with them, they can rack up appearance points. And then if we don't hear from them from September to March because they're involved in school, no skin off our nose. 
That's really cool. That's you, you know what I love about this uh, because clearly it was designed with intent. This is a system that would be fun to game. <laughs> like <laughs> I, I could, I could the the uh, the long dormant power gamer in me is already thinking of ways. Oh, I could rack up so many different games if I just played this weekend and this weekend. Uh, that's that's an appealing aspect of it to me. Uh, and it was designed so that there is something for the power gamers to engage in. There's actually a metagame puzzle also baked into things. What? And so there's different videos that we produce that have puzzle clues and everybody gets clues in their welcome package. And there are subtle things hidden all over the forum that people haven't even discovered yet. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. I am challenging people now. One shot heroes who are listening. If this sounds like something that you're interested in, solve the puzzles. I want I want us to to be a team of people that actually solves all these puzzles. Uh, so if you're looking at signing up, really strongly consider it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Let's let's not let a leaf uh, be unturned on this. Um. So I want to cut back over to Metatopia for a second uh, because you guys are doing something over there that I really like. Uh, both Kat and I are huge proponents of growing the industry, as I've said many times throughout this show. And like I said before, I think one of the best things you can do to grow the industry is welcome in new voices. You have really made a push uh, for women Women game design professionals. Uh, so I want to make sure that any women in our audience who are listening, who are game designers or are considering getting into game design, have an opportunity to connect with a community of other women. Uh, so let's talk about that for a second. Okay. Um, so I'm going to start this by saying that five years ago, when the topic of women in gaming came up as a panel... I fluffed it off. I'm like, my gender has had no influence on my experience in the industry. Don't be ridiculous. I'm I'm second in command of double exposure, and I run conventions, and I run a living RPG, and uh, people don't have the authority to question my decisions or to uh, put me in a place where I have to defend my expertise. Um and then I realized that I lived in a teeny tiny ecosystem, and that uh, when I venture out of that ecosystem... And when I look at it from a more intersectional perspective, absolutely, my gender has influenced my experience as a game designer and as a content provider. And even within the community, um, the expectation that I'm going to be the one doing the emotional work and the fact that people are really shocked when I'm the one loading the truck at the end of the convention is like, wow, there are actually microaggressions all over the place that I've developed a thick skin to, but they happen. Mm -hmm. And um, so I've been looking at this and considering this and pondering this issue and talking to women and talking to feminists of all types for the last several years and really working hard to understand um, the nuance of things like, well, why don't more women GM and why aren't more women involved in um, positions of leadership and why don't women take control of these big projects and why aren't women taking on game design? And so I've worked very hard to develop a very nuanced understanding of the situation. And there are a million different reasons. And some of it are cross intersections of class and education and gender and race. And so what Metatopia works to do is not just specifically 
women game designers, but game designers from any disadvantaged background. Mm. Um, so we don't put up with uh, age shaming. We don't put up with, as a, as a community, I try very hard to model that we do not engage in othering people, as it were, for things that are outside of their control. And that includes neurotypicalness, disability. So just putting that out there that a lot of what we do is work very hard to understand the intersections between these places and to create an environment where we can deconstruct those barriers to entry while acknowledging people's experiences. So specifically, because I am a woman in gaming and because I feel like the industry does a terrible job as a whole at being a space where the concerns that face women in, quote, the industry are addressed, at Metatopia, we are launching an initiative um, where we are inviting women and non-binary trans game folk. That's not pros. That's not designers. That is anybody who is involved in verbing games in any way. So if you are a player, I don't want to hear, well, I'm just a player. I want you to get involved. Reach out to me. Um, I will make sure that James has the uh, URL yes. for, the, for where to find the announcements about this. There's an email address set up on G+, that we all keep an eye on, in order to get you involved in what we are calling a support chain. And this is the first time we're doing this, and we're certainly hoping that this becomes a thing that we are able to port to other conventions and other experiences. Um and one of the things that I am I'm trying very hard to do is to figure out how to create very agile support models where people are not locked into relationships and dynamics that can become toxic mm. um, and that have no opportunity to stagnate. So for Metatopia, each person is going to have a supportee, someone whose welfare they are looking out for over the course of the weekend, and they will negotiate what those boundaries are. Yes, I need you to check in af on me after my slot. Or I'm going into a panel. It would be great if you had a bottle of water for me because I'm just not going to remember. And I always get on stage and suddenly remember that I've forgotten to have something to drink with me. <laughs> and you're going to have a supporter who does that for you. What this is designed to do is to make sure that everybody is engaged. And if someone is like, oh, I don't have a lot to add, you have the opportunity to be a cheerleader. And if you're like, well, I don't have a lot that I need, well, then we'll get you involved in other ways. Uh, there's going to be a uh, ceremony on Thursday night. We're going to come together each night of the convention to do a debrief and to touch base and to make sure that anybody that has had a hard or rough day or a super triumphant day has an opportunity to unpack that experience in safe space. And we're going to be hosting a tea social that is an alternative to socializing at the bar for people that don't find the bar to be safe or comfortable space for developing actual connections to people. I love everything about this. I think one of the best things gaming can do is bring people together. And I know not everybody, but certainly some people have had very isolating experiences with gaming. And, you know, part of it, it does even extend to not being able to go up to the bar and feel comfortable with people. So creating new spaces for people to interact around the hobby is such a very necessary and cool thing uh, for anyone to do period but for uh, somebody intentionally as an organization to do it's just a really great idea that's so necessary in so many spaces i'm very happy that it's happening in this one 
I, it, it's taken us a while to get to the point where we're ready to launch this, but it's, I think it's absolutely vital if we're going to create spaces that do invite people in on a multitude of levels. I, and what I like about it, like even though it, it took a while, that's because you put a lot of thought and intention behind it. I think it's easy, uh, especially with something that's political, like gender politics, race politics, or class politics. It's easy to dismiss other viewpoints that you don't fully connect with. And what this, this strikes me as something where you're welcoming a lot of different viewpoints um, and just creating a safe space so those viewpoints can be exchanged. Uh, mm-hmm. Because, you know, like like Avi said, she was one of the people who got into the industry and didn't have a lot of pushback because right away she managed to assert uh, herself in positions of responsibility and power and make friends with a lot of different people. And she realized that not everybody had that experience uh, and that both experiences are valid, but the problems still exist, even if you don't happen to have a negative experience. And I did not internalize the microaggressions or the moments where I was dismissed because I was young and female, because I've been doing this since I was 18. Mm-hmm. And so looking back, there were a fair number of experiences where I got closed out of conversations or I was shut down in very passive ways because I wasn't male or because I wasn't perceived as having experience because I just ran conventions. And I simply bounced back and shoved my way back into the space. I've always been the type who, if you try to push me out the door, I'll come in the window. (laughs) And so I didn't realize that I was responding to and skirting around and rebuffing microaggressions on a, a significant a wavelength that was using up energy. And then I was at one of the big conventions this year and all of a sudden it felt like I was back to being 19 and it felt like it was 2000 again. And I'm like, holy crap, did I just live in this? (laughs) And yeah, the answer is that when I look back and look at it objectively, there was a lot of awful stuff that was happening that I simply walked around and went, that's not my circus. Those aren't my monkeys. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. But... (laughs) Not everybody has that mindset and not everybody has the certainty of being where the buck stops to go, well, screw you, buddy. You are not the decision maker here. And so I want to extend that certainty to as many people as I can and say, no, this is my vision, my product, my concept. I'm in charge here and I don't need your validation in order to accomplish that. That's great. Having a space that is designed for more and new and different people to engage with. That is something that the hobby needs. So if you're somebody who hears this conversation and is immediately feeling defensive, what I am telling you as another dude in gaming who wants you to stay in gaming, do not worry and don't concern yourself with this. If you don't want to be a part of this space, you don't have to. But everybody is entitled to be part of gaming. And spaces like this and communities like this are so important and necessary. We don't all need to experience the same approach to the hobby. The important thing is that we are all sustaining the hobby together. Uh, That's why I think it's everybody's duty to welcome people with open arms, even if it doesn't quite jive with how you experience it. I would absolutely agree. You know, the fact that we are creating a space where women are encouraged to plant their feet and stand up straight and 
proclaim their competencies and their expertise and to tell their stories does not exclude any of our allies from standing with us and telling their stories as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, again, people who uh, are listening to the show, what I want from you specifically as a creator is to help foster these positive experiences in gaming. And even if that comes down to a level of not dismissing ideas that you don't care about immediately when you first hear about them, uh, I think it is an important duty that you have to keep that in and respect these spaces. My call to you heroes out there is, I think the positive call to welcoming new people into the hobby is so important. And it's the reason that many of the people that we love to see in game design are going to have careers in the future, because we will have more people out there buying and enjoying games. And if any of your heroes want somebody to give them sort of a bullet pointed, how do I accomplish this without stepping on people's boundaries and without uh, transgressing? Mm-hmm. Um, I am absolutely available. Uh, I assume that I can give you an email address that you can put on the podcast and people can reach out to me and say, Hey, I heard this. Maybe I had a defensive reaction, but then I sat and thought about it for 10 minutes and I'd really like to figure out how to conquer this. Uh, I spend a certain amount of my time each week doing the one ones and the, how do I conquer this? Uh, and what should my starting point be? And so I am extending that offer to your listeners that if they want to have a conversation, about where to begin and what they can do to make their space more inclusive and safer, I can provide resources. That's amazing. I I can think of so many people that I've talked to in the past who don't feel great about how they acted as a teenager or, you know, maybe even uh, up to a couple years ago, but uh, have constantly, you know, come asking friends, how do I not act like this? And found that, uh, you know, people don't have concrete answers, uh, but having somebody to help guide you through that process is also very nice. Um, so definitely, uh, guys, if you feel the need to know where to start, uh, feel free to contact Avi. I will have uh, links to all of that in the show notes for this. Um, well, since we've talked about uh, double exposure and the wonderful things that you, you guys are doing to broaden the field of game design, uh, Metatopia, my favorite convention, uh, and of course, uh, your call to a more positive experience and new spaces for people in the industry, I think that uh, wraps up our interview. Is there anything else that you'd like to say to our audience to uh, send them on their way as they're thinking about these conversations? Yeah. Keep gaming and be excellent to each other. We'll get this right. (laughs) Awesome. Avi, thank you so much for sitting down to talk with me on this. I love so much of what you guys are doing over at Double Exposure. I love so much of what you're doing personally. Uh, Guys, if you want to support Double Exposure, if you want to support any of the ideas that you heard on the show, please follow the links in the show notes. Uh, Please follow them on Twitter, at Google Plus, and all their social media, and get involved as a herald. uh, That it's a great program, and they need more people to make it even better. So thank you again, Avi. Thank you. As always, a big thanks to our supporters on Patreon. If you want to help us in a non-monetary way, the best thing you can do is tell a friend about the show. You can also leave us a rating or review on iTunes. Every five-star review we get helps new people find the show. 
If you want to hear more from the show, be sure to follow us on Twitter at OneShotRPG. Look us up on Facebook at Facebook.com slash OneShotPod. Check out our Tumblr at OneShotPodcast.tumblr.com. Check out our Google Plus community. Or look for news on the site at OneShotPodcast.com. If you're looking to inquire about advertising rates, live appearances, and commissioning episodes, or you have a question or comment about something you heard on the show, contact us at GameMaster at OneShotPodcast.com. Critical Success is a joint production between Peaches and Hot Sauce and Paracosm Press. Peaches and Hot Sauce is a Chicago-based comedy network with tons of great podcasts, videos, and live shows for you to check out at PeachesAndHotSauce.com. Finally, that music, which is right now swelling up over my voice, is Be Your Own Pet with Adventure, courtesy of Infinity Cat Records. See you next time, heroes. Attention.